Spirit came down upon her, and the power of the Most High overshadowed her. Thus he was born of a woman from the tribe of Judah, a descendant of Abram and David in fulfillment of the scriptures. Two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without converting one into the other or mixing them together to produce a different or blended nature. This person is truly God and truly man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and humanity. And I think we were just wrapping up that last clause uh, last week, if I'm not mistaken. So the big takeaway here is the importance of seeing two natures in one Christ. Two natures in one man. Okay, this is very important. Uh, And it it uses the language people often uh, think, well, if there's two natures together, they must somehow be blended into some kind of a new compound, and that is wrong. So it's not like uh, the two mix and then become a new thing, like stirring sugar into your coffee or mixing red and blue to get purple, and then a new thing happens. So Jesus' natures are distinct from each other. They don't absorb one into the other, uh, but they also don't repel each other. They're also not uh, so opposed to one another that we say that you almost have two persons in Christ. Jesus is one person, with two natures. And yes, that is hard to understand, but we must affirm with Scripture that Jesus is the God-man. He is fully God, fully man. Very, very homo, very dei in, uh, in Latin. And these are both true, whether we fully understand how this works or not. But one person. <clears throat> and so we can say when it comes to uh, the crucifixion, and we think about it as we move up to Easter, In the crucifixion, I'll ask some questions here. Did Jesus die? Yes, he did. Did his heart stop beating? Were there brain waves? No. He was dead. He was dead. Just like we all will be one day. Just like many of our grandparents are. Jesus was dead. Did the Trinity get trimmed down to two persons when Jesus was dead? Did anything change in the Trinity with the death of Jesus? Nothing whatsoever. The Trinity is unaffected by the death of Jesus. Okay? Because the divine nature lives on, despite the human Jesus being dead. And that maybe sounds weird. So that, did the second person of the Trinity die on Calvary. No, the second person of the Trinity did not die. Did Jesus, the God-man, die? Yes, he did. Okay, you guys are all answering this correctly, but it seems weird to, <laughs> to slice it that fine, doesn't it? Okay, well, now you have. Yep. Yeah, no, the Trinity did not implode. Okay? But even when we think about that, well, how can, if Jesus is, is truly God and Jesus dies, how can the divine nature not die with him? And this isn't as hard to comprehend as we think it might be. Think about just normal human death. Does the soul cease to exist at human death? Or is there a separation? There's a separation. 
But the soul either goes to be with the Lord or not. It goes to preparation for hell. Okay? But the soul lives on. And so it's not that absurd to say when the God-man dies, the divine nature is still there. Because in regular human death, the human nature is still there. In an unnatural, temporary, disembodied form waiting for the resurrection, yes. But the human soul does not cease to exist. It's not annihilated. And again, this is actually one of the many, many, many downstream problems with the doctrine of annihilationism is it doesn't understand human nature properly. And you very soon run into Christological problems in the doctrine of annihilation. So you're playing with bad stuff if you're playing with annihilationism. You're playing with dynamite. I'd say you're, yeah, Don asks, are you denying the image of God in man uh, with annihilationism? I'd say yes, because the breath of God is extinguished. Which, think of the problems with that. How many, how many problems does that create for you? Right? Yeah, so don't do annihilationism, people. It's bad juju. <clears throat> I'll maybe leave it there, but this, the, the, the big takeaway is to see the two natures somehow united in Christ, but united in a way that they don't mix into a new compound, and also united in such a way that they don't repel like oil and water where you almost have a schizophrenic Jesus. They're united in one man, in one person. At Jesus' human death, the human nature does what all of our human natures do, which is temporarily be separated from the body, which again, I can't stress enough, that is unnatural and temporary. Heaven has bodies with meat in it. We can shake hands in the new creation. Okay? Heaven is earthy. It's material, it's solid. Okay, And so Jesus' death was no different than ours. The human nature, the soul, was separated from the body, and the divine nature carries on as normal. Who doesn't believe in a, in a physical resurrection? Oh, uh, well, uh, you should have been here last week. Um, <laughs> In the early church, when these creeds were being hammered out, this, this language is borrowed heavily from the Athanasian Creed, or the Chalcedonian definition, because that was the presenting issue in the early church. There was a group called the Eutychians, named after a guy named Eutychius. These heresies are always easy, because you just look at the name, and then you say, well, that's some guy's name. Uh, Eutychius held the mixed natures. One part divinity plus one part humanity equals a different kind of thing named a Christ. Today, that's a good question. I'm not sure that there's widespread belief in either of these today. What you could have, and I'm not sure that it would actually be like a formal Christological heresy, um, but L. Moeller talks about Jesusianity. And what does he mean with Jesusianity? He talks about a lot of progressive Christians really aren't Christians. They're into Jesusianity, not Christianity, because they're so enamored with the humanity of Jesus, as though Jesus is essentially an, primarily an ethical teacher. They like the John Lennon Jesus. They don't like the second person of the Trinity, Holy God from heaven. So I would say uh, they probably don't formally structure it in a heretical way, 
But when you hear people really emphasizing the ethics of Jesus, um, kind of on a more liberal spectrum, there is, even if there's not an outright denial of the divine nature being united, it's at least not very interesting or not very important because what really matters is the ethics of Jesus. It would. Yeah. So when you're dealing with Christology, it's so closely tied to Trinitarianism, right? If you think of the Trinity like a triangle, now we're focusing on one corner of that triangle, the God-man, right? Because one of those persons takes on a human nature and a human body. So if you make a, if you make a mistake in your Trinitarianism, you're going to make a mistake in your Christology and vice versa. Yeah, but if you screw one up, you'll screw... Yeah. Yes. Yes, okay, so if you're talking about modalism, that is taught today. Modalism is this Trinitarian heresy where there's only one person in the Trinity, and the, the three persons are essentially three masks or three costumes, okay? So sometimes God shows up like the Holy Spirit. Sometimes he shows up like Jesus, and sometimes he's the Father. But there's only one person. Right, yeah, it's fluid, yeah, um, and that heresy is taught today. So, uh, who, on the Christological stuff, I'm not aware of groups that make formal heresies on Christology. There are some on on the Trinity for sure, which are known for their their Trinitarian heresies. So. One would be the Jehovah's Witness, clearly. Uh, they believe in an old heresy called Arianism, where the, the second person of the Trinity came into being. The Father created the second person of the Trinity, which now Jesus can't be divine, because you can't have a created God. There's some things God can't do, and creating another God is one of those things. Because if God could create another God, a created thing can't be God. right? So there's some things even God can't do. So Jehovah's Witnesses would be there. Um, has anyone heard of Oneness Pentecostals or United Pentecostalism? Okay. They are formally modalists. They deny the Trinity. And where that starts to be, look practical is they'll make a big deal with their Biblicism. Well, the Bible says it doesn't say that you have to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's a mistake and, uh, and so forth. And so they'll, they'll act like Biblicists. Well, we just baptize in the name of Jesus. And it sounds good, and it doesn't sound like a big deal. But the reason that's really important to them is because there's only one person in the Trinity. Okay, so oneness Pentecostals, are, they're called oneness because there's just one person in the Trinity. Um, and we have oneness Pentecostals ar- around us. We uh, used to have a guy working on our farm. Her, his wife's dad was a oneness Pentecostal pastor in Portage La Prairie. So this isn't just stuff that you're never going to run into. This is real uh, real stuff. So there are oneness people uh, around us. There's Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, I'd have to do a little more thinking to say that where it's a specific Christological heresy, I'm not familiar with, with any. I'm not saying there aren't, but I, I can't think of any off the top of my head.
Yeah, Jesusianity. Yeah. Yep. Here's the thing. I don't know if you guys have picked up on this. It's an intentional thing I do. Um, and I didn't invent it myself. I picked this up from other people. Have you ever noticed, pay close attention to this, in preaching and teaching, in conservative circles, do you hear the title Christ being used a lot more than Jesus? And in liberal circles, you hear Jesus used a lot more than Christ? Okay, one isn't wrong and one isn't right. They're both right. Jesus is the Christ. I would say I intentionally favor my usage probably 70% towards Christ and about 30% towards Jesus. Because to me, maybe you disagree with me, the word Christ encompasses the whole thing and it makes a clear reference to his divinity. Whereas Jesus easily gets degraded into an ethical flower child from the 60s. Okay? So again, is it wrong to say Jesus? No, of course not. He was Jesus. I just favor that language because it, it, to me it paints a fuller picture of who Jesus Christ was and is. I don't know, and maybe that's just me being hung up on details. Has anyone else noticed that? Or if I say it now, can you think back and say, yeah, that actually kind of makes sense? Or do you say, Matt, did you hit your head on the way out of the house this morning? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, and best would be say Jesus Christ. Yeah. Put it together. His name and his office. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and there, there you have a title, an office, and a name. That's you can't go wrong there. Yeah. Is it? Okay, Brandon Robertson, uh, if you guys want to see a very contemporary debate, Keith just brought up Brandon Robertson. James White and uh, Jeff Durbin had a very LGBTQ plus affirming pastor uh, on Apologia Radio to debate sexuality. So Brandon Robertson is a very committed liberal. Um, and Keith is saying he's not sure he, re- he heard Brandon Robertson refer to Jesus as Christ at all. Okay, yeah, interesting. Because he can't be the God-man. He's just a prophet or a, a teacher. Yep. 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 And that's, again, it's not wrong. It's not wrong. But if you hear me saying Christ a lot more than Jesus, it's not just because it rolls off the tongue better. It, it's a theological decision that many of us more conservative people will make. It's a, it's a choice to undergird sound theology. Marina, your hand was up. Yeah, I agree. If you didn't hear Marina, she's just saying that people redefining Jesus to who they want to be, right? And that happens a lot. Whereas with the name Christ, to me, the word Christ is weighty and it's somewhat imposing and intimidating, which is why it's really important to use, I think. We should be intimidated by him. 
whereas just to say, you know, Jesus, well, to me, Jesus, blah, blah, blah. Well, everything that follows from to me, Jesus is, if it's not straight from scripture, it's essentially idolatry, right? We, we don't have the freedom to redefine who Jesus is. Yeah. Anything else on this? Okay, so to recap, did the second person of the Trinity die on the cross? Did the Trinity implode at the crucifixion? Was Jesus the God-man? Did Jesus die? Did his human nature die just the same as ours all will? Just the same as your grandparents? Yes. Okay. Yes, it's slicing it fine, but yes, it's also important to think about these things in precise terms. Are we ready to move on? Any questions on, chapter, on section two? Good to drive on? Okay. <clears throat> section three, chapter eight. The Lord Jesus, in his human nature, united in this way to the divine, in the Son, or pardon me, in the person of the Son, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit beyond measure. He had in himself all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The Father was pleased to make all fullness dwell in him, so that, being holy, harmless, undefiled, and full of grace and truth, he was thoroughly qualified to carry out the office of mediator and guarantor. He did not take this office upon himself, but was called to it by his Father, who put all power and judgment in his hand and commanded him to carry them out. Okay, so this is starting to be more of a practical outworking of the theory that we just looked at. And so let's break this down up to footnote 13. Who wants to take Psalm? Who's got Psalms? Evangeline. Who wants to take Acts? Jolyn. And who wants to take John? Howard. Okay, so I'll read it up to footnote 13 and then we'll work through the texts. The Lord Jesus, in his human nature, united in this way to the divine, in the person of the Son, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit beyond measure. Whoever had Psalm 45, go, go ahead. Okay, good. So we see there's an anointing here. Your God, this is personal language, there's union here. Acts 10, who had that, Jolyn? Okay, good. Okay, God was with him. And so let's think about this. If Jesus is the God-man, is he God? So why does he need God with him? Why does he need the Holy Spirit? Because he's in triunity with the Holy Spirit. So why would he need the Holy Spirit? And the, that's, yeah, that's essentially what I'm asking. I, 
I think so, but which nature needs that? Which, which nature in Christ needs the Holy Spirit? The, the human nature, yeah. Yeah, the human nature needs the Holy Spirit. The human nature needs to be anointed. Okay? So again, some, some people will parse this and say, see, he can't be God because he needed the Holy Spirit. Uh, but we're looking at the divine nature or the human nature, and it's the human nature that needs to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Which, nat- which nature is tempted in the wilderness? The human nature, yeah. Okay? So, so who needs the, the sanctifying help of the Holy Spirit to resist that temptation is the human nature. God is not tempted with sin. The divine nature is it's impossible for him to sin. Right? The human nature can sin. We all know human natures can sin. So for Christ to obey with the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit as a man for us is intercessory work. This is medi- mediatorial work for us. Okay, so the question is, and this is only happening after he was baptized, I would say no, uh, but what happens at Jesus' baptism is it's made public. It's like a coronation ceremony. So it's made public. Today I have begotten you. Well, he's eternally begotten, but there's a public uh, kind of a coronation aspect to it when God speaks from heaven, putting this on clear display. We're no longer in obscurity growing up in a little town. He was the God-man then, too, and he needed the Holy Spirit then, too. Um, And I'm not sure if it's going to be in the text later on. But has anyone ever puzzled over, and he grew in wisdom? Why does Jesus Christ need to grow in wisdom? The human nature. There was a time when the God-man couldn't count to five. Think about that. Jesus had to learn the alphabet for you. Jesus had to learn math for you. Why? Because every part of you needs to be redeemed, including your mind. So the God-man could not walk for a little bit. The God-man couldn't roll over or make a sentence. He was truly man, very man. And he had to grow in wisdom and stature for you. And he was upholding, by his sovereign power, the mother who was changing his diaper. Wrap your head around that. If this baby says, my mother ceases to exist, she's gone. Okay? The God-man is keeping his mother's heart beating so she can change his diaper and teach him how to walk. This is remarkable stuff. Okay? And whoever thinks theology is boring or dry because it, it, it tries to solve the mysterious, I'd say no, it goes deeper in. And if this doesn't fill you with awe and wonder at the size and the magnitude of our God, you're doing it wrong. This doesn't destroy mystery, this enhances it. This makes it romantic, makes it glorious to think these things through. How a man can die in the Trinity is not imploding. How a God-man learns how to walk while upholding the universe by the power of his might. This is remarkable. Could Jesus have sinned? And 
Can I give you a theologian's answer, which will sound like a political answer? Yes, Jesus could have sinned. Also, no, completely impossible. Does that help? <laughs> clear? All clear? Yeah, it's exactly like the bones breaking thing. Keith, do you want to explain that? Right, so looking at the nature of the thing, did Jesus have unbreakable bones? No, he didn't. According to the decree and the sovereign power of God, were Jesus' bones ever going to break? No. Okay, that's how I'd understand the temptation to sin. Touching Jesus' divinity, completely impossible in every respect. Touching his humanity, he could sin. I don't think so. Marina's asking, could the Godhead just take over? So you're asking, could the divine nature just kind of overshadow the human nature and prevent sin from happening? I don't think so. Here's why. Uh, Because to heal me and my sin, a man has to do it. A man has to keep the obligations for me as a man. So when Jesus obeys, it must be according to his humanity, or else it can't be substitutionary. So Jesus' obedience, Jesus' resistance of temptation, um, and even his physical death and, and physical resurrection has to be according to his humanity. Otherwise, it can't be substitutionary. So I would say, is it possible that Jesus' human nature could have fallen? Yes, of course it is. It was a human nature. And we, uh, the only other unfallen human nature that was ever brought into existence did fall. So we know it's possible for an unfallen nature to fall. Um, but it has to be according to his humanity that he obeys so that it can be applied to you and to me and to Howard and to Hugh. Does that make sense? It, yeah, it would be kind of a cheat code if the divine just kind of overpowered. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you can't tempt God with bread. You can't tempt a hungry man with bread, right? God doesn't get hungry. The second person of the Trinity is Jesus Christ does get hungry. Um, well, theoretically, yeah, theoretically, theoretically, any human could resist sin. And, yeah. <laughs> I'm saying theoretically. Maybe I'm not quite understanding, though. Sinless? Sinless? 
it's in connection with it because the two natures are united. What we don't know is exactly how these attributes are communicated from the divine to the human. But I would say this. After the resurrection, are you going to be a human? No. I, I think you will be. Okay. I expect I will be a meaty human after the resurrection as well. Will it be possible then for me and you to sin? No, it won't. But that's not an insult to our humanity. That just means our humanity is restored. So it's not a necessary feature of a human nature that we must be sinful. It's unavoidable in a fallen world because we're born sinful. But after the resurrection, when we're given spiritual bodies, and spiritual bodies doesn't mean we can float like gases. It means incorruptible, impervious to sin. But we'll still be humans without sin and without the capability of sinning. He wasn't. No, you're right. He wasn't a glorified man, but he was a man that was anointed with the Holy Spirit in such a way to a greater measure than we are, clearly, um, because he did successfully resist sin. And can we always resist sin? No, we can't. I don't believe in sinless perfectionism, not on this side of glory. But I can think of several examples where I have successfully resisted sin, and so can you. Now imagine once your nature is healed and unfallen, right? And then imagine in heaven when your nature is so healed that it, sin won't even look good to you anymore, right? You're, you're still be a human. To do it as well? Okay, let's back up further to the virgin birth, though. He's not from, yeah, he's not from that fallen seed of Adam. So in essence, he has, his, human, his humanity, his human nature operates more like Adam than it operates like ours. Because for us, sin is inevitable. Because of the fall, the curse, covenantally, like a pinch of sourdough starter that goes into the new loaf, it's just sin and corruption are just part of our makeup. That's who we are. We are depraved in every way. And so Jesus doesn't have that disadvantage. But that doesn't make him not human. Because Adam was a human before the fall, and me and you will be humans after the resurrection. So, so sin isn't a necessary part of humanity, right? And sometimes I think for us as Reformed Christians, we so stress total depravity, which is true and right and biblical. But it's not a necessary part of humanity. It's a corruption that was introduced at the fall. But we were humans before and after. If he wasn't totally depraved, because, well, how was Adam tempted? There was still something. Was there anything wrong with what Adam was offered? Really, really, well, because there's a command of God, yes, there is. Uh, because there's a command of God, it is off limits. But I, I do think uh, the right reading of Scripture would be to say after a probationary period, Adam would have progressed and graduated to be allowed to eat from the tree. 
and then to seal that at the tree of life. But because he made the first misstep, that tree of life is waiting for Jesus at the resurrection. Um, But he was tempted with something that wasn't in itself evil. It's just something that was not yet time. Think of Jesus' temptations. Uh, And this is an important thing when we talk about the way people are tempted and the way people rationalize sinful desires today. There are certain temptations that only make sense to a corrupted nature. And I'll give a, a concrete example of that. Could Jesus have been tempted sexually by an attractive woman? Yes. Yes. Because a male human nature (laughs) desires that. Could Jesus have been tempted by homosexuality or rape? He could not have. Why? Because there is no lawful purpose whatsoever anywhere in creation for those things. Okay? The things that Jesus is tempted with are lawful things at the wrong time or or taken the wrong way. But there's certain things that we are tempted with that only even seem tempting and even seem appealing because we're already corrupted, right? Rape or polygamy or homosexuality wouldn't be a temptation at all if we weren't already fallen. So the serpent could not have tempted Adam before the first fall. He couldn't have tempted Adam with... Uh, a homosexual temptation. Adam, what is it? What? Come on. <laughs> right? But after the fall, when your nature's already bent and you already want all the wrong things, now there's a whole lot more things that we can be tempted by that have no lawful place anywhere in God's creation. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, that's right. That's right. So again, I don't know if I shared the meme. The, uh, the bomb squad guy trying to clip wires on a bomb, saying me trying to discuss the Trinity without becoming a heretic. So we're dealing with very fine distinctions here. And it's important, and we need to think about that, but I want to be careful the way I, I, I talk about things and the way we think about things. Okay. Um, And the internal versus external temptation with a corrupt nature or an unfallen nature is actually a really important distinction. Because no one can excuse their sin and say, God made me that way. Okay, Sin corrupted you that way. God did not make you that way. Sin bent your desires and they're bent into all kinds of weird things uh, that have no lawful expression. Yes. Adam had no native love for sin before he fell. We do. Sin is appealing to us because we want it. We born, we're born wanting it. We're born hating God. We're born loving ourselves. So all kinds of weird things, right? So, so bread and wine, perfectly good, lawful things. Scripture speaks positively about both. What do they become? Gluttony and drunkenness. <laughs> right? Uh, a right order for glory becomes personal vain glory, right? We're wired for glory. We're wired for law because we're made in God's image and we have glory and law from God. But what do we do? We turn it into vanity projects and legalism, right? It's not because glory is wrong. Glory is good. We're made for glory. We're made for law. We're actually wired to obey God's law. But we become legalists or we become lawbreakers because we hate it. 
That's the problem with original sin, is we love all the wrong things, and we hate God. Our minds are used at a very limited capacity. I've heard, I don't know how you could prove this. I've heard we use less than 10% of our brain power. Okay? And geniuses approach 10 or 11%. I don't know if that's true or not. But everyone in this room is running at vastly reduced horsepower. Right? We're on limp mode because our, our, our deaf heater isn't working. Okay? So we're on limp mode. Will our perception, will our understanding of the cosmos be better after the resurrection? And I'd say yes. We won't be omniscient like God. I don't think we'll know everything. But certainly we will know what we were designed to know, of which now we know very, very little. So does it make sense that the Redeemer has to put his mind in learning things like walking and counting in the service of God? Because that is the pathway to redeeming our minds, right? Our minds need to be renewed. Our bodies need to be renewed. Our desires have to be reordered. Like everything, uh, the church father Gregory of Nazianzus said, and I I love this quote, that uh, whatever Christ has not assumed is not healed. Which is just another way of saying, if Christ is going to heal it, he has to walk through it. So he needs a mind that can learn things. He needs a body that does things and can get hurt to redeem that. He needs a human nature so that he can reorder your desires and my desires so we want the right things. So that's why I think even down to the physical organs and the the, the development processes, that's part of Jesus assuming full humanity to redeem every last part of us for glory. Does that make sense? He could have just shown up as a 30-year-old man and started preaching. Yep. Yep. Did we read John 3? Why don't we read John 3 yet, and then we'll wrap it up there. Who had that? Howard? So God has sent him, he utters the words of God, and he gives the Spirit. Okay, so again, Christ's purposes and God's purposes are aligned, both according to his humanity and his divinity. Okay, so it's essentially another aspect of looking at the same thing that we've been discussing. And so again, what are we trying to avoid? Well, we're trying to avoid, on the one hand, Nestorianism, which breaks Jesus up into little pieces that hardly touch each other, and we're trying to avoid what's called Eutychianism, which is where we just put it all in a blender, and then Jesus ends up being something different than us, according to his humanity. And we want to say Jesus is like us in every way, 
And in addition to that, he has a divine nature that's united to his human nature. And that human nature needs the Holy Spirit to resist sin, to obey God's law perfectly. But he's obeying as an unfallen man who has the potential to sin according to his humanity. Otherwise, it's not a temptation. So that's the big tickets on the, on the eye chart. And I'm good to stop it there. Any further discussion? Things I've been unclear on? Heresies I've tiptoed into, unaware? but I can snuff you out any time I feel like it. Yep. 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 Yeah, and according to his humanity, he doesn't do it, right? He goes through the process. Yep. All right, that's lots of heavy stuff. Who finds it exciting talking about this kind of stuff, asking questions you haven't thought about before? I do. I find this great. Some people think it's very dry and dusty, and I hope... We're not treating it that way. This should not be dry and dusty. This should fill you with awe and reverence. And it should also help you to see the gospel is Trinitarian. The gospel is Christological. Okay, You get these things wrong, there is no salvation. And I'll make one more point to take the pressure off all of us a little bit. When I use the word heresy, I use it in a technical sense. And I don't think we should throw the word around lightly. Heresy is something that is so damning and so wrong that if people genuinely believe it, they are not Christians. Okay? Now, what about eight-year-old me who thought that the God-man union was like a man jumping into a gorilla suit? Was I saved? Yes. I'll make an important distinction here to take the pressure off and still realize that heresy is a serious thing. There's a difference between what's called material heresy and formal heresy. Material heresy just means the matter of the heresy is in someone. You run into a genuinely born-again Christian who makes a total hash of explaining the Trinity. And he goes the three-leaf clover route on you and you're going, no, please. Okay? That doesn't mean they're not a Christian. Formal heresy is when you're corrected and you refuse to back down. You refuse to be corrected by Scripture. Okay? Jehovah's Witness stuff, where everyone's saying, no, here, let's, let's do a Bible study. Let's look at this. Let's look at how this has been understood. Um, and they refuse to back down, and they lean into their heresy. That's what's then called formal heresy, and this is an unteachable person that Scripture warns us about. But it doesn't mean... If you thought until two weeks ago that three-leaf clover was a good way to explain the heresy, it doesn't mean you were a heretic. It just meant you had a bad analogy in your head. Okay? So when we're talking about heresy, everyone just breathe a sigh of relief. <laughs> Wrong ideas don't kick you out of the kingdom of God. Okay? Leaning into them and refusing correction is what we need to be careful about. Okay? Does that make sense, Elf?
in a literal six-day creation? It depends to a degree how they would hold it. I'd say if they hold it like theistic evolution, that's serious error. Yeah. If it's old age creation and James Usher got his dates wrong and I'm going to say it's 10,000 years instead of 6,000 years, yeah, let's discuss it, but we're in the same ballpark. If you're introducing millions of years, I do think, and I'll grant there are Orthodox Christians who have done that, before Darwin pushed them into it. Okay? The Church Father Augustine didn't believe in a six-literal-day creation. But here's the thing. He pushed the other way. He said God wouldn't need six days to do it. It probably happened all at once. And God's just using symbolic language to help us understand a con- series of ideas. So when you get these people saying, well, Augustine didn't believe in a literal six-day creation. Right. He thought it it's all there. Okay, I think it is. I think every usage of the word yom means day, 24 hours. Sun goes up, sun goes down. I, I would strongly defend young six-day creation, young earth. But I wouldn't... The test of orthodoxy for me on that one, like the bare bones, to be a Christian, you have to believe Adam and Eve were historical persons, and you have to believe there's no death before the fall which I'd say that means you're a young earth six-day creationist. But if someone inconsistently holds to millions of years that involves no death and no fossils and nothing until the fall, I'd say that's inconsistent, but I wouldn't say it's automatically heretical. I'd just say it's a bad reading of scripture. would be the way I would answer that. And I don't know if that, if I'm too... I hope you don't think I'm a closeted liberal now. Uh, Yeah. Formal or material heretic? (laughs) Is it helpful to think about degrees of heresy? People can have ideas that are heretical without they themselves being a heretic, without they themselves being outside the Christian faith. Maybe they've just been taught poorly. Maybe they've never thought about it, and your conversation is the first time, and they're just processing their own thoughts with their words, and it's a little bit sloppy and not thought through. They're not a heretic, even if their ideas are outside the bounds of orthodoxy. Okay, Keith? Yeah, I know, but we all know well-meaning Christians who have used bad analogies for the Trinity or Christology, right? Yeah, that's right. Amen. Who wants to close in prayer? Actually, you know what? Yeah, someone else want to volunteer? I usually do. Someone else want to close in prayer? Don.